Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this Monday of Holy Week 2021. So yesterday was Palm Sunday. Jesus entered Jerusalem with his disciples. He rode on a borrowed donkey or the colt of a donkey. He arrived to much celebration. And in the same way, uh, he arrived much the same way that generations earlier, the Israelites had welcomed kings. So the crowds lined the streets with palm branches. They sang um, and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So who could possibly, you know, be offended by um, by such a thing? Adoration, recognition. Well, the problem is um, the recognition that Jesus was offered. Um, it, it is it is the recognition of the coming or the arrival of a king. Um, the expression of adoration, praise, and joy um, was was the exclamation or the declaration of who Jesus was. I mean, who they understood him to be. Hosanna, Hosanna, Savior, Rescuer, the one who saves. Um, It is used in the Hebrew Bible in verses um, related to helping and saving. Psalm 118 might be a place that you would look for that. Um, But you have to imagine for just a moment that the Romans— would have seen Jesus being hailed as king of the Jews, riding into Jerusalem as the Savior, declared the Messiah, Hosanna, Hosanna, the one who has come to save, uh, as a direct threat. And so if you've ever wondered what put Jesus fully in the Roman crosshairs as an insurrectionist threat, (laughs) Palm Sunday uh, might be your event. And then you say, well, okay, So what happens between Palm Sunday and Thursday and or Friday, Friday specifically, Good Friday, when you've got these crowds crying out instead of Hosanna, Hosanna, declaring Jesus uh, as Savior, they are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So how did the Jewish leaders of the day turn the hearts of the people during the course of the week? Well, the events um, which are understood to have happened on this Holy Monday. When Jesus challenges the authority of the Jewish leaders by throwing out everyone who's doing business inside the temple complex. Uh, So we think of it as the turning over the tables of the money changers, but it's more than that. It is Jesus declaring that they have turned the house of God um, into, uh, into a den of thieves when God intends for it to be, you know, a house of prayer for all people. And so... When you consider what Jesus is saying about and to the religious leaders of the day, um, you know, you have you have turned worship and you have turned forgiveness and people's opportunity to uh, approach God. You've turned it into a burden. You've turned it into a tax. You're actually keeping them away from God when God has provided this sacrificial system as a means for people to be able to approach him. 
So that's what's going on this Holy Monday. And if you want to read those passages, I would encourage you maybe to turn to Luke chapter 19, pick up at verse 41. Um, You can also read in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 to 8. Um, There's a reason. There's a reason that the Romans saw Jesus as an insurrectionist threat, and Palm Sunday is good reading for that. There's also a reason that the Jews saw him as a particular threat. Um, the Jewish leaders, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, saw Jesus as a particular threat to the system, the religious system of the day. And today, on this Holy Monday, we um, we understand where that turn comes in the cleansing of the temple or the driving out of the money changers. All right, let's turn to some current COVID headlines. Let's talk again today with Dr. Zach Jenkins. We'll be right back. Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, welcome back. Good morning. All right, so here's my off-the-cuff starting question for this morning. How good are you at keeping up with, like, little paper receipts? <laughs> uh, well, I, I actually do okay with it. My, my wife mm-hmm. uh, tends to place them in different places, however, mm-hmm. and, and I run across them months later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have come to like decline them now because I'm like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with that. I don't know where I would put it. It would totally end up in, you know, under the seat, da, da, da. So you see where this is going. I would like to talk very briefly about these, these little paper vaccination cards that literally it's just a little white piece of paper. Now that I've seen it, now that I've held one in my hand. Um, so I know that I'm supposed to take a picture of it. I'm supposed to make a copy of it. I'm supposed to laminate it after I get my second dose. I'm supposed to keep it safe. Um, I got to tell you, it seems to me, at least at least with the mass of humanity uh, with whom I participated in this particular event, um, not advocating that anybody else has to do it. I'm just sharing with you personal note that I did it um, or have done it. Um, uh, that that little tiny piece of paper, I got to tell you, I am suspicious that people are not going to be able to keep up with that. Oh, I don't think you're wrong at all. <laughs> it's actually I, I'm looking at it right now. It's it's been sitting on my desk for months because I, I want to make sure I don't lose it either. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So I bring this up because um, uh, I have become uh, aware that in order maybe to enter certain events or you know vacation in certain places, you're going to have to have that thing. So I just want to. This is my public service announcement. If you think that little piece of paper is not important, um, maybe put it somewhere where you put those important things, not those receipts that get, you know, lost under the seat of the car. Okay, let's talk about President Biden's um, sort of new goal for immunizations, uh, the the increased 100-day goal. There's been some confusion, 200 people vaccinated or 200 <laughs> vaccinations, which is, oh, sorry, a million, which is 100 million people. Right, so, so he's saying he wants to... Uh have 200 million people vaccinated people um, not now, vaccinations because we have so the number of people they, okay hmm. that means getting someone getting the dose started so they get their first their first shot and then uh basically waiting to get their second shot mm-hmm. okay so um any i don't know thoughts comments you think that's realistic I, you know i we hit the 100 million goal uh, of people getting a shot 
And, and so I think it's probably realistic um, considering the supply chain is getting better. Uh, we actually have partnerships like uh, Merck and Pfizer, for example, are working together. Um, and those are competitive. They're competitors with each other, right? Merck actually was working on a vaccine and then pulled out of the market, uh, out of the race, really, because their vaccine didn't do any good. And so they're, they're helping them with their company now. So I think you, got, you have got examples like that happening and other things that are freeing up the supply chain. But um, we'll see. Oh, see, <laughs> when you bring up supply chain, I so badly want to talk about the Suez Canal, but I will resist that temptation. Um, so, <laughs> okay, let's talk instead about variant concerns. This is, and I promise yeah. I won't just be a rabbit trail this morning like Carmen wants to chase every rabbit <laughs> out there. Um, I'm, I am thankful in a place that is horribly flooded to even be on the air this morning through the diligence of our engineers last night who figured out how to reroute my internet through some sort of, I don't know what we're bouncing off of right now. So I just am thankful to be on the air this morning, Zach. So forgive my, um, forgive some of my rabbit trails. Talk with us about variant concerns. Yeah. So there are three big variants we are concerned about. There's the United Kingdom variant, there's the Brazilian variant, and then there's the, uh, South African variant. And all of them have shown some reduction in their, or I, I guess all of them have shown activity in reducing the vaccine's effectiveness or different vaccines' effectiveness. So I think the big thing to think about with uh, these variants is as they spread, we are concerned that eventually we may have some start to really escape the vaccine. And if they become mm. dominant, that could be a challenge for us. And that's actually why things like booster shots are being developed um, as these things are emerging. But the big thing that's happening, and this is this is kind of some interesting data now, is the United Kingdom variant, um, which you may hear referred to as B117. So that variant is accounting for maybe about a third of all cases in, in the country, and it's more dominant in some parts of the country already. It's already about half of the cases that at least random samples are kind of showing. So we, we do know that one's already moving, but the other variants are present in the United States already. Um, and... If you look at South Africa, when that variant was circulating down there, um, people that had previously had COVID that came into contact with that, it was almost like they didn't have much immunity to it at all. So that's one of the challenges we run into with any variants. And that's all the, all the more reason for us to try to, I guess, uh, reach, reach that herd immunity status and or try to slow down the movement of these variants through the population. All right, we're going to talk about some breakthrough cases with Dr. Zach Jenkins um, right after the break. But um, during the break, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to advocate that if Zach ever gets to name a variant of anything, <laughs> that he name it R2-D2 so we can remember it. Oh, my daughter would be so excited. Right? That would be so much easier than like B117. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, right. We will uh, We'll be right back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. If you can All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Uh, yes, listeners are also advocating as an alternative. You could name something C3PO, and then we would be able to remember that as well. So I'm not trying to start any sort of battle among my Star Wars fans this morning. I'm just saying there are things easier for us to remember than other things, which is kind of weird to think about. Okay. Hey, um, my my break... daughter wants to be Darth Vader, so maybe we could pick that. <gasps> <laughs> uh. All right, let's talk about... Um, 
She see see she'd be fun to have on air if she has a like the if she knows how to do the voice <laughs> right. like right anyway okay I I digress let's talk about breakthrough cases um getting COVID after being fully vaccinated yeah so I think I think what's important to recognize with um, these vaccines is none of them are 100 percent effective and that's true for any vaccine so even though they have high efficacy rates and you know if you look at the moderna and pfizer you're about 94 95 percent effective with those you're going to have some people break through but the good news is when the cases do happen they're almost always mild so that's actually the goal behind these vaccines is it reduces the incidence of severe disease the things that are going to land you in the hospital um, in the ICU in particular, it'll cut that down very significantly. And so the cases we've seen so far um, that have happened in, in the setting of these vaccines with the strains that they're they're covering is they tend to all be very, very, very mild. So that's really good news for us as we do think about vaccines. Um, the variants, are, of course, are that one animal that we have to kind of have a good plan around because those, if if we start seeing breakthroughs and the breakthroughs are actually not true breakthroughs, they're variants that are actually causing new infections of people that don't have full immunity to them. That's the big thing we have to be worried about. And so that's why they're having discussions about these boosters. That's, and I mean, it's just fascinating. So uh, it's an unfolding story. Um, all right. So I know that there are people out there who are interested in, in hearing an update on AstraZeneca this is one of those reminders, Zach, that um, the news that you thought you knew about something a week ago is not the news about something today. So talk with us a little bit about what's going on with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes. Yeah, so, so AstraZeneca's had kind of this storied history so far with the U.S. They uh, submitted their original vaccine data way back when, a number of months ago. And then the FDA basically said, this isn't good enough. You guys need to redo some of these studies. And, and so they, they pushed back, AstraZeneca went back, collected more data, and they came out with some early data this, this past week that said, hey, our vaccine's 76% effective against the dominant strains that are circulating right now. And, and so then they came back later with some updated information that they had collected that said it's actually 79%. And it's, in fact, even a little bit better in the elderly. It's up at upwards of like 85% effective. And, and so... The data is better that they 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 uh, came in with, but it just kind of creates a lot of confusion when they come out with these public statements and then that circulates around the media and people hear different things. So they're like, well, what do I think about all this? Um, more concerningly is like the fact that in uh, parts of Europe, there were some reports of blood clots that they were saying were associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, the incidence of that was incredibly small. But even so, it gave people this cause for concern. And so they, they basically halted the use of this product for a little while in Europe while they were investigating it. And they recently resumed that because they felt that, you know, the risk is actually fairly minimal, even if that does cause anything. Um, and weird, weird fact, they actually think that it may be some sort of allergic reaction that some people are uniquely having to the AstraZeneca vaccine. But what causes a lot of concern is if you, you've got some of these uh, – less developed countries, this is the vaccine they get to use because they don't have the ability to store the other things well. This is the one that, that has the, the most stable shelf life for them. And so the challenge it creates is it creates um, a lot of their populations are, are becoming really fearful 
And so they're like, well, you know, Europe shut this down. We're, we're seeing like data go back and forth. What are we supposed to think about this thing? So that that uncertainty is making uh, it less incentivizing for people. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. Less incentivizing um, is a segue, I think, for me to a conversation about getting kids vaccinated. I got a lot of listeners who are not getting the vaccine. I hear from them every Monday after we talk. Um, I know you're out there. I know you're listening. I appreciate your concerns. Um, When we talk about kids getting vaccinated, Zach, where are you at on this? So we, we don't have data right now for anyone that's under the age of 16. So like just saying let's vaccinate kids, I think, is not the best practice at the moment without any kind of data to back that up for safety or efficacy. Safety, of course, coming first. So they're working on doing some studies that will look all the way down to the age of 12. And if we look at who does spread things, we do know that those 12 and up tend to harbor the same amount of viral spread as adults. And so if you're looking at clamping down the movement of the virus through a population, that group may make sense. Under that, though, and, and 12 is a slightly arbitrary cutoff because there's some variation there, but, he, but under 12, we'll say, um, I, I think it's a bit more of a debate because at that point, we know that kids don't tend to transmit the virus as, as much as adults do. They, do. they do get the virus. The cases are almost always mild in kids. Um, but but they're not the big sources of transmission. We've seen that in schools. There's no difference between schools and then the general community. Uh, so we've got data on that. So I, I, I think that that's, that's a population where it's like, well, I, I don't see an immediate need to, to make that happen as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And like, yet in some more... states, yeah, I mean, some states, they're kind of pushing it. So, I mean, you know, they've got vaccinations yeah. available. And so well, they're, and they're... Go ahead. you've got teachers unions, too. That, that are pushing really hard for that to happen. And it's like, well, the, the kids aren't really going to transmit it to you. You're more likely to bring it in than they are. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, one last story, and that's on vaccinations and high blood pressure. What do we need to know here? Uh, there's There have been some reports out of uh, Europe, in particular Switzerland, that have started to uh, associate maybe some cases of temporary high blood pressure that, that may happen after people receive the messenger RNA vaccines to the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. We've not really seen that documented here in the States at all yet. And considering that's been the dominant vaccine uh, type that we've been using for, for months now, you would have imagined we would have heard of it by, by now. But the incidents of the these cases that they've reported in Europe, um, if they are indeed caused by these vaccines, is maybe like... <laughs> One one thousandth of a percent is almost what it accumulates to. So so there's a very low chance that someone actually is going to have these happen. When it happens, um, they think it might be related to some kind of aller- allergic reaction in, in people rarely. But we, we don't know for sure. And again, we, we haven't proved association at all yet. Um, so there, I was maybe a little bit surprised by the questions that uh, that I was asked. Um, when I sat down to get my uh, to get my first shot, um, every question that I was asked was related to. Now, this is you know after I like answered all of the questions that we all answer all the time everywhere about exposure and symptoms and and all of that. Um, but when I actually sat down, the uh, the registered nurse asked me before giving me the vaccine several questions about 
blood clotting disorders, um, uh, if I was on, you know, anything for as a blood thinner, if I'd taken an aspirin. Um, what? I, I guess I was a little bit surprised by that series of questions. Maybe you're not. No, and some of those are really kind of standard standard fare when it comes to, to vaccinations to a degree. Okay. Um, or really medications to a degree because there can be some interactions there. And so they're trying to track that kind of thing. And in particular, when you inject someone with anything, um, there's always a chance that you could have like a local reaction in, in that immediate future. And so that's why they, they keep people there. And normally when we have those things happen, you see it in the first couple of weeks. Um, so that's kind of why they're asking those kinds of questions. Hmm. Um, they, they did. They have asked quite a bit more about allergies this time. Um, because there were some concerns early on with maybe uh, the, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines in particular, because they have those unique fat particles in them, lipid particles. Mm-hmm. And so people were like, okay, well, maybe you might be allergic to something like that. So they they were asking quite a bit about that early on. But other than that, most things are pretty standard fare. All right. As always, Zach Jenkins, thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate you joining us. Um, That's Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. You can find him on Twitter at FarmDHiker. we got to take a brief break for Knowing God. David French is a, a former attorney. You might um, recognize him as like an American political commentator. He's also a Christian brother in Christ. He's a fellow at the National Review Institute. Um, he he writes at The Dispatch. He's a senior editor at The Dispatch. I, I say all of that because he joins me on a regular basis. And um, today I'm teeing up a, an article that he wrote um, along with his wife, Nancy, um, that was posted yesterday. And it features Canacook Camp. And for those of you who have a history with Canacook, um, you you recognize um, the significance of that camp among evangelical Christians. And so I kind of think that this is one of those conversations that needs to come with a warning label. Um, this is not a good news story about Canacook. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Mom and Dad, are you holding a grudge against one of your kids? Did your son or daughter mess up and you're still holding their mistake over their head? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. No relationship can thrive without a spirit of grace and forgiveness. As parents, we need to acknowledge the pain that comes when our kids fail to meet our expectations. Withholding forgiveness builds a huge barrier between us and those we otherwise love. Do some inventory today. Think about the ways you might be causing your child to pay for the pain they've caused. How about burying the hatchet? Don't you think it's time? Let them know that it's over and that you love them unconditionally. God did it for you. Let's do it for our kids. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. again today with David French. You can find what we are discussing today at thedispatch.com. The article we're going to lead off with is They Aren't Who You Think They Are, the inside story of how Canacook, one of America's largest Christian camps, enabled 
horrific abuse. Um, and, and let me just go ahead and tell our listeners, um, you should read the story from beginning to end. David and I are going to touch on um, a few points, but we are certainly not going to be able um, to cover the, the mammoth uh, story that is uh, chronicled in this account. They aren't who you think they are. You can find it at thedispatch.com. David, good morning. Good morning. Um, maybe as briefly as possible, summarize the story and then really um, tell us what it takes for you and Nancy to tell a kind of this kind of story that you we all wish were not true. Yeah. So the the story of the story uh, begins last October when Gretchen Carlson, the former Fox News anchor, who is really ever since she left Fox, um, as many people might know, she she left Fox and was one of the people who ended up uh, exposing a lot of the sexual abuse at Fox News. She has really been focused on trying to end these non-disclosure agreements that silence victims. And she reached out to Nancy, uh, who she known she's known for a while, and said that there's a layer of secrecy surrounding a really serious abuse case at Canuck camps. So Nancy began working on this issue back in October and was just tenacious. I mean, finding, uh, tracking down comments on YouTube videos, uh, comments on blog posts, talking to people who've not talked to anybody ever. And essentially what she did is she pulled apart and revealed a scandal that occurred at Canuck Camp where there was a super predator there named Pete Newman who abused a number of, of kids that is still unknown, a very large number of kids in a horrific way. And what was horrible about the story wasn't just that there was the super predator there, but that the first the first uh, report that he was engaged in inappropriate behavior with kids was made to camp officials 10 years before his arrest. And that the reports came into camp officials periodically for year after year after year until his arrest, including reports of nudity with campers in various highly inappropriate situations. And so that was the story. The story was talking about not just what Pete Newman did, which was largely unknown, even though he was eventually arrested and imprisoned, but also when camp officials knew it and what they did in response. And and that was the part of the story that for you know all but the tiniest handful of people was completely and totally unknown. And what really broke it open was that there was one victim, and so far only one that we've been able to find, who did not sign a non-disclosure agreement and who provided us with access to the case files from his case. And what we saw in those case files was just really quite shocking. All right, we are talking about um, Canuck Camp or Camp Canuck. Uh, we are also talking about um, sexual abuse of children. And we're talking about it taking place in, you know, what is supposed to be a Christian environment. This story um, is is it's just gross in the the way that young christian minds in in my view have been so perverted to think things about the good gift of sexuality um and why god gave it and the context in which he gave it to be expressed um all of that is perverted and i it breaks my heart like i one 
one story of a victimized child by a Christian camp counselor is one too many. But we're talking about um, something that went on for a fairly long period of time and involved an unknown number of children. The bottom line, uh, David, it feels like to me in all of this is no more non-disclosure agreements for Christians. Right. Like whatever right. has been done, let their light, let light be shined upon it. Right. I mean, you know, the way the way I put it is leave the decision about privacy to the victims. So mm. if the you know, if you have victims and many of these uh, many of these kids were abused when they were quite young, quite young. And and so some people don't they don't want to come forward. They don't they just don't want to. They don't want to talk. Um, but some people, they make these agreements because in the course of the litigation, it's it, the litigation itself can be just deeply damaging. And so to end it, to end the litigation, to try to close that chapter, often they'll agree to non-disclosure agreements. And then as they grow up, as they you know get a little bit older and they want, they realize that what's happened is that the accountability for the, the abuse has been limited in part through these, these agreements. And they're not able to tell their story. Nobody, we're left in a situation like we are here with we parents who want to maybe want to send their kids to the camp don't know what happened. They don't know the story. Uh, they're bound to secrecy. And so, uh, you know, there's several things that should happen here when there's an abuse situation that arises. One, do not have a non-disclosure agreement. Let the victim speak if the victim wants to speak. Number two, commission an independent investigation. Number three, make that transparent. And then number four, have accountability for leaders, for others in the camp based on the results of that investigation so that people know can have confidence that they know what happened, that it's been dealt with, and that the people who were responsible potentially for enabling the abuse, that something has been done with them as well. And and in this circumstance, there was such a shroud of secrecy that for years the camp was allowed sort of by the public at large to essentially have a narrative about this incident that was they were shocked to discover a bad apple. As soon as they discovered the bad apple, they fixed it by putting together, quote, you know, industry leading or model policies to protect kids and then went on from there when the reality was they had reason to know he was a bad apple for 10 years. And the prosecutor in the case said when the most disturbing aspect to him was that so many families called in wanting to have specific in updates on the case when the predator was finally caught, that he was worried that the true number of victims in the case could measure in the hundreds. Hmm. We have a listener um, who texted in, David, um, saying, you know, I think that the the people at RZIM were also required to sign NDAs. Talk about, you know, why Christians were would try to silence their employees. Why why Christian organizations would um, would try to keep things that are happening in the dark? Well, for both secular and Christian organizations that were in abuse scandals, and and they're correct about RZIM, um, there was a, a notoriously a, a uh, non-disclosure agreement after the first person publicly came forward about about Ravi, uh, but the. The reason is both secular and religious organizations have done it for years is because, as, for lack of a better argument, that lawyers have told them it's in their best interests. So, mm -hmm. you know, the lawyers get involved, and the lawyers the lawyers are not sort of looking out for the gospel. I mean, even 
even Christian lawyers, their job is to look out for the best interests of their client. I mean, that's why they're there. And what the lawyers will say often is that you're in, it is in your best interest to put this behind you as, as rapidly as possible um, it, and, and get a non-disclosure agreement, maybe pay a little extra money for the non-disclosure agreement, get this behind you, closest chapter with minimal damage. So the, the lawyer represents the institution, like the ministry, and, and the lawyer's focus is on moving to the next chapter with minimal damage. Well, that's not necessarily kingdom focus, right? That's not a focus. Mm -hmm. That's not a holistic focus on what's best for everybody involved and what's best for people who are, you know, interacting with the ministry in in many different ways. Not best for what's it's not what's best for employees. It's not what's best for parents. I mean, for the kids themselves. Uh, and so, you know, essentially, what should happen, and this is some, this is a movement that's moving in Christian sec, uh, circles and in secular circles, is, as you said, it no more NDAs, no more NDAs, and because what has ended up happening in multiple institutions is that NDAs have covered up abuse, and because then accountability is left entirely to the internal processes of the ministry, if people who committed wrong run the ministry. Well, who's going to hold them accountable? And so uh, that's why there's been a lot a move, especially in the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, to say no more to these NDAs. There has to be public knowledge. The light has to shine in the darkness, and there has to be accountability. You can read the full article at thedispatch.com. Um, also want to encourage you, if you if your church is not actively engaged in these kinds of conversations, check out all the resources at churchcares.com. Uh, and if you want to join um, the effort to end NDAs in the workplace, um, Gretchen Carlson's uh, outreach is something you can find at liftourvoices.org. David French and I are going to take a very brief break, and then we'll be right back. Continue my conversation with David French. You can find what we are talking about today at thedispatch.com in a section called French press. Um, all right, let's back up. So one of the conversations that we could have as a result of our conversation about uh, Canacook is a conversation about purity culture. Um, the purity culture conversation is also in the headlines uh, because of the horrific shooting in uh, shootings in Atlanta. So um, you've got an article about that as well, tying those two threads together, why the Atlanta massacre triggered a conversation about purity culture. Brief us in on this. Yeah, so this arose because the, the uh, Atlanta massacre, uh, the shooter, and we won't use his name, said that there are two things going on. One, he was in, in treatment for sex addiction. Um, and apparently the uh, those who know him said that that's something that he had been obsessed over for some time and that he went and he says that he shot the women at these massage parlors because he wanted to remove their uh, temptation from his life. Apparently he frequented some of these massage parlors. And so what you saw in him was this two things at once, this obsess, obsession with sex, sexuality, sexual sin, he even said that he thought he was going to lose his salvation. And then this idea that you deal with that by dealing with not yourself, but in this case, in a very extreme case, by dealing with and shooting and killing women. 
In other words, it was women who were the source of the problem for him. And so what ended up happening, and this is a conversation that started in Christian communities and then bubbled up into the mainstream media, was a lot of women were saying, wait a minute, like this is an extreme version of a lot of the things that I was taught in purity in the purity movement, which was two things at once. The singular sin was like, I mean, sexual sin was like this big singular, singularly crippling sin. And then number two, that women bore responsibility for man, a man's purity. And so what I wanted to do in the article was say, look, okay, Purity culture, when people say purity culture, they're not talking about just standard Christian biblical teaching about sexuality. Purity culture means something pretty specific. It means a movement that was highly focused on sexual sin and then also at its extreme edges put a lot of the burden for purity, uh, man's purity, on women. And I said that that movement was very toxic. Now, we don't know we know the shooter had belief systems that were mirrored like that, that you would see in purity culture. In other words, that sexual sin is singularly insidious. And number two, that women, you know, that the women were responsible for his sin. We don't know if he learned that at church. We know he had that belief. We don't know if he learned it at his church. But what I wanted to do is talk about what purity culture is and was and how it was different from the teaching, the standard Christian biblical teaching about sex and uh, sex and sexuality. This, um, I mean, sex is uh, overly complex in our culture today, right? I mean, if we if we were just going to celebrate the good gift of uh, of sex the way God designed it and the context in which God God designed it to be to be shared between one man and one woman for a lifetime in the context of the covenant marriage. Um, we would be having none of these conversations. And so part of what um, I'm always keen to highlight, David, is just how far we live from Eden. And we have people who still imagine that, oh, well, you know, we just live right next door to Eden. No, no, we (laughs) live a long way from Eden. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and one of the things that uh, a a reader pointed out, which I think was a great point, was in the aftermath of that uh, purity culture article, he says, he said it really arose in the 1990s when the sexual revolution arguably was at its height. In other words, uh, abortion rates were very, very high. They've come down, thankfully. Uh, Divorce rates, very, very high. They've come down, thankfully. A lot of measures of sort of sexual behavior had reached a kind of the peak of the sexual revolution and sort of their departure from biblical standards. And a lot of people were sort of desperate for a way to return people to a biblical standard. And what they did is they created a standard that was not biblical. It was, it was extra biblical. And it, and, and so what it did is it sort of taught a generation of young people and there's still lingering effects of it today that look, if you commit a sexual sin, then you're, you're tainted. Something about you has changed. And, you know, there'd be things at summer camps like, here's a clean penny. Look how beautiful it is. Here's a dirty penny that's been handled a lot. Look how dirty it looks. And so there's two states of being. If you're a virgin, you're the clean penny. Or if you've, in some extreme circumstances, never even kissed a person before you were married, you're the clean penny. And then don't become the dirty penny. And and, you know, these kinds of teachings, which sort of took sex and basically said, wait, um, it's a it's a super sin. You know, it, it changes your status no matter what, uh, you know, and yet sure. Yeah, sure. Jesus can forgive you, but your status is still changed, which, you know, that is a 
you know, that's not really a biblical teaching. I mean, your uh, sins, they were scarlet. Now they shall be white as snow. I mean, your your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. And and you can be pure again in the eye and being defined by Christ, not by your sin. And and so it it, it really did this thing to a, a, a generation of kids, not everyone in the church, and most people in the church didn't encounter this kind of extreme purity movement. But for a generation of kids, it did teach them these two terrible things that were not true, which, which is one, that sexual sin is the singularly important sin above all others, and that number two, that women were responsible for a man's purity. David, um, as always, it's incredibly helpful. Um, I had hoped to have time to get to the conversation that then grows out of the Atlanta shooting and then the shooting in Boulder, and that is a revived conversation about the Second Amendment. So I will simply direct people to um, the excellent piece that David has posted at frenchpress.dispatch.com. Um, on you know the fact that not only is the Supreme Court headed for a showdown on the Second Amendment, um, but the President of the United States is pretty committed to uh, gun reform. So these are conversations that uh, David helps us have. David, we really appreciate you being with us today again. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, all right, we're going to take one more brief break, then we'll be right back. Oh, an interesting conversation uh, popped up. Um, uh, on our text line. So thank you for that. I will try to answer it right here. Well, this won't, there won't be enough time to answer the question, but I'm going to try. So would the purity culture say to dress modestly because dressing immodestly causes men to stumble? Is that a part of women being responsible for men's purity? Yes and no. So yes, this gets surfaced in the conversation about purity culture. Absolutely. But let me say this to every woman listening right now. You, um, you are supposed to be a fisher of men, but that does not mean you're supposed to dress like bait. That, that is the bottom line for me. Um, so I dress modestly because I am already covered with Christ. I, am, I put on Christ every day. And I, I got to tell you, Christ is not interested in wearing some slinky half covering out in public, right? He's not out there to seduce people in any way. So modest dress for Christian women is about respecting Christ. It's about respecting myself as a person who is in Christ. It's about respecting um, others. And yeah, it's about glorifying God. And yes, of course, not leading other people into uh, into temptation and into sin. So all of that is wound up together. But first and foremost, if you put on Christ every day, you're likely also to then put on modest clothing. So that's the bottom line in the conversation about that. Thank you for asking the question. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.